waking up is not enough flourishing in the human space a podcast by Polly young eisendraft and michael berger when you peek into the cosmic unity of existence and feel the love and inspiration of awakening what happens next whether it's through meditation spiritual practice near-death experience ingesting a mind-altering substance or being born again you don't get a map for improving your messy life in this podcast Polly young eisendraft and michael berger draw on expertise in science psychology adult development psychedelics ndes dreams and buddhist practice in conversations about compassion resilience responsibility kindness and development after awakening you will learn how to chart a new path for flourishing in the human space in which waking up is important but not enough and growing up is never finished co-hosts Polly young eisendraft and michael berger bring different kinds of expertise Polly is an author psychologist union analyst longtime zen practitioner couple therapist and founder of dialogue therapy and real dialogue michael berger is an entrepreneur an expert in psychedelics a spiritual practitioner of jewishness a skeptic a real dialogue specialist and a filmmaker who is known for his documentary improbable collapse the demolition of our republic Polly and Mike will engage with each other and invite a wide array of guests who are accomplished scientists and seekers whose work lies beyond the hegemony of materialism. An overview of stages of adult development. In this episode, Mike and Polly give an overview of the differences in adult development that includes cognitive, moral, emotional, and interpersonal differences. In a broad sweep, they will look at the idea, ideals of conformity or group identification. Particularly, they will talk about pre-conformity, conformity, and post-conformity, and how to understand the ways we all mold our views to those people and habits we identify with. As a guide to examining differences in adult stages of development in future episodes, they introduce and converse about five questions about truth and doubt that you can use to assess your own stage of development. One, are you capable of entertaining real doubts about your beliefs? Two, can you give the evidence you would need to see in order to change your mind? Three, can you articulate the position of your opponents in a way that they recognize? Four, are you attacking ideas or people who hold them? Five, do you cut off from close relationships with people you disagree with? If so, why? If not, why not? Hi, Mike. Hi, Polly. Well, today we are going to take on a very, very complex and big topic that relates to what we talked about in our 
last two episodes where we were talking in general about the theory that there are predictable differences in adult minds and that those differences have been studied scientifically and that they have an underlying structure or logic or sequence. And so we're gonna continue that today in trying to make things a little bit clearer, a little bit more precise uh, so, so that listeners can begin to perhaps set out a map for themselves in trying to understand the relationships they see around themselves and to understand themselves. Before we, we actually talk about the, these stages of pre-conformity, conformity, and post-conformity, because you might want to say conformity to what? You know, what are people conforming to? I want to, I want to talk about the idea of adaptation for humans. And let's say my hypothesis, which is not mine alone, is embraced by many scientific theorists who are theorists primarily of emotion, but to some extent also of social interaction, is that humans, and by humans, I mean homo sapiens, adapt to a environment of human relationship that our biology is a biology of relationship. So that when we look at the organism, the genetics and the environment for the human organism, that would be the homo sapien, we have to understand from the start that there is no such thing as a baby without a mother. And there's no such thing as a mother without a community. So the human infant is born into a relationship and that relationship is structured and designed and interactive from the beginning, from inside of the womb. And from the point of view of the infant, the structure and interaction are emotional, motivating systems that elicit certain kinds of responses and behaviors. From the point of view of the adults surrounding the infant, that structure is linguistic, cultural, interpersonal. So the surrounding adults who support the infant attribute to the infant a lot of things before the infant is able to talk or, or even recognize itself as a separate being. So I just want to start by saying that humans adapt to a biology of relationship, which includes all of the biology of hormones, neurotransmitters, physiology, everything that involves embodiment, but more than embodiment, it is everything that involves communication. So that human infant is born into an environment that involves communication. And ultimately we could say love because love is the reality that's behind the specifics of whatever it is, language, culture, persona. So I wonder if you wanna say anything about adaptation. I know there's a movie also called Adaptation that came out quite a while ago. Um, before we move on to talk about the particulars of what a, what a stage is. To comment on one other aspect of that environment that we're born into, 
which would also include a specific geography and time. So where and when we're born connects to the symbol system, the culture, the language, the morals, basically everything within which we develop comes from that adaptation to that particular group or tribe and place. The other thing, I don't know why this just jumped into my mind, about the myth of a child being raised by wolves, by something wild. Perhaps maybe that myth illustrates the tensions between socialization and being wild, between nature and nurture, one aspect or one way to interpret that myth, and that there are also cultural and psychological implications about this yearning for us to be connected to something wild, which we lose in socialization and the process we're going to discuss. Well, apparently we lose it. I wouldn't say we lose it. I'd say we encompass it and it becomes something else. We transform it. I can, I have a vague recollection of an actual study of a, of a boy who was raised by wolves. And as I recall, what was a remarkable was that there was development. I mean, there was actually the possibility of developing uh, with the wolves. In other words, the, the I can't remember the conditions or anything, but of course it wasn't what we would call normal development. It didn't lead to the kinds of development that allow people to walk around and have a life. But the boys survived and had some characteristics that were, as I recall, capable of being translated into somewhat human-like interactions because, you know, uh, the human infant has so much dependency. It also, it evokes and elicits responses from others and then expresses back to others. And that becomes an interactive cycle of life. And if you're going to do that with wolves, what you're expressing back and what you're eliciting is really very different than if you're with a human group. It makes sense that this boy developed in a way that was quite different from being human. But the surprising thing is that he survived and he did develop. Which maybe speaks to the power of that pack bond. In other yes. words, it goes, I think it speaks to what I've understood you to be saying about there is no individual in isolation. Right, right. Well, it was the, also, it maybe speaks to somewhat what it means to be a mammal, that mammals share emotions with us. You know, the primary emotions are shared with mammals. And so the human infant expresses and evokes primary emotions, you know, like sadness and, and fear and disgust and joy and curiosity. And so do, the, uh, so do the mammals. I mean, so the human infant is a mammal and other mammals also have those emotions. And so then they can they can interact with and you know and nurse, for example, a human infant. In any case, I have only a vague memory of this, but I, I'm sure it's available all over the place online and, and Wikipedia or whatever. Adaptation in a relational situation means that the human is engaging and is no longer in some way separated or isolated in the womb the human infant is not separated or isolated, but it's getting very few 
let's say, stimuli. You know, it, it, it hears the voice of the mother, obviously is getting nourishment, could feel the mother's moods and movements. And if there are other infants in the womb, obviously interacts with those other infants as well. So there are interactions prior to birth. But once, the, once born, then you're in this complex involvement with other humans, and it's driven by emotion initially, as we've talked about. So how do we get from, let's say, this you know early engagement of the infant with sort of a sensory motor environment and the human emotional environment to the organization of a sense of identity and a separate sense of self? And we've talked about that some. So what we're going to be talking about now in terms of stages of development is essentially, it's, it's a continuum of paradigms of self-other engagement that have been researched by a number of researchers, but we're following the work of Jane Lovinger, L-O-E-V-I-N-G-E-R, who's a psychologist researcher from Washington University in St. Louis, Direct, she directed my dissertation, and I worked on research on ego development for 10 years, first under her direction, and then uh, I was a professor at Bryn Mawr College, and I did research on ego development there. The reason that you and I are introducing this into a conversation about awakening is, that, is around the issue of who awakens. And so who awakens is not simply the idiosyncrasies, the individualities, the particularities of the individual that awakens, but also the worldview, the meaning-making, the framework that that individual takes to be reality. And what ego de development does as a, let's say, an arc or a scheme of frames of reference on being human is give us a map so that you can see the systematic unfolding of these paradigms of being human. And then we can look back from those and say, okay, if you, if you person A awaken in this frame of reference, you're going to make conclusions about your awakening that tend to be like this. And if you really wanna grow and develop from that awakening, you need to look at the next stage just beyond you and begin to reach for a reorganization, even though you can't really do that just consciously. You have to do it really through insights, intuitions, your dreams, your further engagement with awakening to move along that continuum of growing up as a human being. And growing up as a human being, as we talked about it last time, means moving from really being concrete, materialistic, conforming, to being essentially deeply relational, deeply curious, deeply compassionate, deeply caring, not because you want the benefits of that, but because you recognize you are benefited by being that way, that you yourself are of that nature, which is what you find out in awakening, but it's very hard to bring it back. So is there anything you want to say about that before I get into the nitty gritty here of ego development? Yeah, I would like to add that to me, this is an important aspect of how to integrate the waking up experience without this map of stages of development. 
it's almost as if it's, it, you know, it's, it's like being one of the blind men trying to describe or understand an elephant. But once you see that there are some predictable patterns in our growth and in the evolution of our consciousness that I believe this map helps me make sense of my awakening experiences and helps me to navigate this journey with more awareness and clarity. Yes, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because, again, what we'll be talking about here directly interfaces with the idea of your snow globe, which is your own dwelling place, the way that you experience the in and the out of your experience what you see and hear in your mind's eye, as well as in the world around you, the way you feel in your emotions and your physical being, the way you inhabit your own adaptation, that is the environment plus the organism. So the environment, the organism, and the genes are what really make up the reality of being human. And the way you inhabit that will be your dwelling place, and that will be the way you regard yourself, as well as what you regard as not self, but connected to you. So in a sense, these stages of development are maps of the snow globes, the typical human snow globes. Also, they are, they are looking at what can be scientifically determined about variance in human behavior, morality, and interpersonal traits. So I want to read just a little bit from the preface, what Jane Lovinger says about this map that she's putting out there. And of course, in her book, which is the 1976 book is called Ego Development. She also covers moral development, cognitive development, interpersonal development. She's trying to come up with a map that is comprehensive. And she has researched a very critical part of that map but then she also relies somewhat on other people's research. And uh, of course she knew Lawrence Kohlberg and she knew Eric Erickson and- Didn't she work with Eric Erickson? She spent a sabbatical year at Harvard when, when he was at Harvard. And so, yes, I mean, I would say they were colleagues. Yes, by then. So she wasn't sort of working in his lab. She was kind of there as a colleague with him on his research. She knew Kohlberg very well. They debated a lot of things, she and Larry Kohlberg. And then George Valiant, who did the research at Harvard on adaptations to life, is the book, the Harvard study of the, the best and the brightest coming out of Harvard in the same class with Robert Kennedy. He was in the study, actually. That study was followed for their entire lifetime, the lifetime of the participants. There were like 210 participants. Some of them are still alive. Uh, and it became a study of defense mechanisms. So another way, actually, this is reminding me to look at adaptation. You can you can look at your adaptation, your original adaptation to life in your original family, in terms of these automatic ways that you you protect yourself and you survive. Those are sometimes called defense mechanisms, and those are things like you know sublimation, projection fantasy, humor, and other kinds of defenses. You can call those defense mechanisms uh, adaptive mechanisms, and you can consider the formation of your personality around these unconscious ways of reacting. You 
can consider that your adaptation to life. And that's the reason why the book that George Valiant did on this, the Harvard study was called Adaptation to Life. And he was looking at defense mechanisms in this group of 200 and some people that they studied originally at Harvard. These were guys that were studied from every angle you could study them, from their athleticism to their intelligence, to their styles of life, to their phrenology, the way their, their heads were shaped and so on. And then as they were as they were tracked over time, the question is what predicts the most satisfying life? And it was not intelligence, it was not wealth, it was not athleticism, it was defense mechanisms. People who had more, let's say, complex, engaged defense mechanisms had happier lives. And that just sort of boils it down to they were more able to form relationships that were love relationships that were enduring than other people in the study. And so it, that's, again, looking at George Valiant's work, he came to work with Jane. I actually scored the sentence completion test for that study. I was among the people that, that worked on the scoring of those protocols. So taking a step back, Jane Lovinger originated this theory from many different systems and she spent 25 years bootstrapping her way up to this map by collecting huge amounts of data and then using those data to put together a scoring manual so that she could score sentence completion tests uh, using, which is really a subjective kind of response, using essentially an objective scheme for scoring them, unless the responses were at the most complex level. So I'll give you a couple of examples of the, the sentence stems that people were responding to. Raising a family, most men think that women, when they avoided me, if my mother, being with other people, I feel sorry, when I am nervous, I, men are lucky because, at times she worried about, and I am. So there are 36 of these stems, and the way they're completed extemporaneously by a person just writing uh, the answers are what are scored to make this system, this map of people responding subjectively, first person extemporaneously, two issues having to do with self and other. And it turns out their responses can be sorted into nine or 10 stages. And some of those stages would indicate pre-conformity, some conformity, and some post-conformity. And that's what we're going to look at today. But here's what Jane said in the preface about the overview of what she's doing in the research on ego development. She says, facing the complexity and diversity of human behavior, the mind seeks forms and order. This system, by sketching a set of forms through which human behavior and thought develops, tries to answer this seeking. What is covered is not all of human behavior, for there are other aspects like temperament that seem relatively constant throughout the long lifespan or like intelligence 
that develops quite independently of the features traced here. Our compass is large, however, many facets of thought, perception, motivation, valuation, and behavior are included. The central claim of this system is that many diverse aspects of thought, interpersonal relations, impulse control, and character grow at once in some more or less coherent way. As bold as this argument is, you might expect to find an array of psychological investigations marshaled in its support, but there is little of that. Nor do I claim support from the breadth of my own experience. I am no clinician, and my research has been almost entirely a paper and pencil exchange with my subjects. The empirical support for the conception of ego development presented is that it represents a common thread in the work of many authors, psychiatrists, psychoanalysts, sociologists, philosophers, psychologists, and others. These authors have studied men and women, boys and girls, normal people, delinquent, neurotics, psychotics, and others. Their experience is not limited to one country or even to one century. Many of them have taken a single strand as their focus of interest, but they are in invariably led to other factors. Nothing any of us can do by the way of laboratory or psychometric research can compare with what emerges from the communality of all of these observations. To conclude from that broad observational base that I am putting together here, an eclectic view of human nature and its development is, however, a misconception. A central theme here is structure as applied to personality and as applied to science as an endeavor. While you may feel that we're putting together a bewildering variety of themes, there is a coherence, not all of it evident on first reading. Coherence is the hallmark of ego and it is also the hallmark of science. So that's an introduction. She quotes a poem at the beginning. I'm gonna quote one part of it again to give us a pretty deep sense of what we're trying to look at. This poem is not a poem that I'm otherwise familiar with. It is a poem by the poet Ernest Kroll, K-R-O-L-L. And I'm going to read just the beginning and then the end. The beginning of the poem, the stream we did not know we lived upon the banks of, proceeded nevertheless unto the sea. And at the end, so much within the scope of mind lay simply undivined, that even more without would less than ever be found out. So basically we are on a channel or a path or an arc that we live by that proceeds from one end to the other, but we do not know that. And yet we are touched by its effects all the time. And this is the scope of the human mind and much of it is undivined. And even more without less than ever would be found out. So basically she's saying, that there is something that we can tell that is running, that is coherent in our development, 
and it's very difficult to find it out. And ego development in the way that it's researched by researching subjectivity and then looking at that objectively is one of the rare sciences for understanding this coherence that we live by that we often are unaware of. So I'll stop there for a moment, get your responses or questions, and now we're gonna go into the actual pre-conformity stages of ego development. And again, we'll be touching on moral development also in this. Thank you for listening to Waking Up Is Not Enough. To explore further, go to www.realdialogue.com where you can download our free app and become a part of our online community. Purchase any course in the Real Dialogue app and you'll receive an email invitation to our monthly conversation where Polly and Mike hold an Ask Me Anything monthly on Tuesdays. Waking Up Is Not Enough is produced by Chris Coltrane and is available on all major podcast channels. And I also would like to just take a moment to announce the upcoming foundational training in Real Dialogue and Dialogue Therapy being held in Stowe, Vermont at the Trap Lodge. Session one begins November 30th. There are three four-day sessions in the next training. Session one is November 30th to December 3rd. Session two will be February 1st through 4th. And session three will be April 18th to the 21st of 2024. For more information, you can go to realdialogue.com and from the menu, select foundational training. All the details are there. If you have any questions about the training or anything in the podcast, you can email me at mike at realdialogue.com.